In the world of political podcasts, there are experts, there are pundits, and then there's Tom Powell. Happy Friday, and welcome to another episode of the Second Half Podcast with Tom Powell. Remember, remember, if you're listening to this, that means you made it through another week, and margaritas are in order. And now your host, Tom Powell. All right, welcome back in, folks. As the man in the intro told you, this is the Second Half Podcast, and I am Tom Powell. And the reason why you should go get yourself margaritas this week is because the kids' Christmas break is almost over. It's almost over. Uh, My daughter goes back to college Sunday, and our son goes back to school, uh, our sixth grader, goes back to school Tuesday. So we are knocking on the door of the end of Christmas break. Now, there are a lot of people I know in the world that are like, no, I love having my kids home. Well, you don't love having your kids home? I can't wait for my kids to be on break. I can't wait for my kids to be on Christmas break, to be on uh, uh, spring break, to be on summer break. I'm going to miss them when they're gone. I don't want to be an empty nester. I Listen, I love my kids. I I would walk through a burning building for all four of my kids. And I do enjoy having them home. We had all four kids, uh, our son-in-law and two grandkids here for Christmas. And while it was chaotic and packed, I I loved having all the family in the house. I love having our daughter home for for winter break from from college. Uh, I like it when my son's home. But... I am not one of those people that is not looking forward to the empty nest part of their life. And I'm going to tell you why. I am looking forward to more one-on-one time with my wife. When we, when we were together prior to the kids, we had a fucking blast. We had fun. Right? And it wasn't it wasn't anything extravagant. It wasn't like we were going out to comedy shows and concerts and movies and, and, and dancing at the club and all of that shit. Not even close. We didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. Sometimes, just getting in the car and going for a ride, the two of us, at night, was more than enough. And I'm looking forward to that last stretch of our life together and being able to do things with the kind of money that we bring in now rather than the piss poor nature that we had when we first started out like everybody else is you know you're living in a one-bedroom apartment with some used furniture you found on the side of the street and your tv is sitting on top of your hamper which in our case was literal uh, so I am looking forward to that portion of our life together. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not looking at the empty nest part of our life as going. Oh, it's going to be so lonely, and I'm going to miss the kids. I'm, I'm going to see my kids. I'm going to visit my kids. My kids are going to visit me. Things of that nature. But I'm, I'm looking forward to that time with my wife. Plus, I'm looking forward to seeing what my kids do in that next phase of their life, and they can't do it if they're still here. So, 
you know, the fact that Christmas break is coming to an end, the kids are going to be back in school, my wife and I are going to start to have a little bit more time where it's just the two of us, I, I look forward to that. Not to mention the fact that, uh, you know, while they're all old enough to sort of take care of themselves, it's like, God damn, you motherfuckers in my house again? Every time I walk in the kitchen, there you are. Standing in front of the refrigerator, eating up all the food. Forgive me, had to wet my whistle. Anyway, because Christmas break is coming to an end, that's the reason I'm going to give you this week to go get yourself some margaritas. Um, you know, overall, things are looking better in the Powell household than they have been in the in the several weeks prior to this. Um, we'll discuss those things in the weeks in the weeks upcoming. You know, better health, more work things of that nature, things are happening. So we'll get into all of that in the weeks to come. For right now, let's just focus on the kids going back to school, you getting your house back, and that being reason enough for you to go out and get a few pitchers of margarita tonight and celebrate accordingly. Now, before we get into the news of the week, uh, let's go ahead and do the, uh, the reminders for everybody. Um, Reminder, of course, being, you know, to visit my website, if you have, if you haven't already. My website is oldhippymedia.com. That's oldhippie, H-I-P-P-I-E, media.com. If you swing by that website, you're going to find almost anything you want to know about me, including links on where you can uh, buy my first two books. I have two self-published books available in paperback and ebook format. You're going to find a link to my Patreon where I do another podcast. I do two episodes a month. I interview people. I have some great interview guests coming up. I've already uh, done some great interviews. Um, I, I, I have uh, I have some people that you may very well know from TikTok coming up uh, on, on some of my interview guests as some of my interview guests. Um, you're going to find a link to my, uh, my my merch store. Over 400 items for you to choose from. You're going to find links on where you can follow me on all the social media sites, links to other podcasts that I've appeared on, links to articles uh, in in newspapers and magazines that I've been on. You're going to find my blog. I'm trying to put out a new blog piece every Wednesday, and and so you're going to see my blog articles there, as well as links on how you can contact me and and much more. Once again, that's at oldhippymedia.com, oldhippie, H-I-P-P-I-E, media.com. Now, we're still in the football season, so I'm still doing a football segment because I do that every Friday during the football season. Uh, last week, I went 9-6 and six with my picks, bringing my season record to 139-101. and 101. Uh, This is the last week of the regular season that we're heading into, so all of the playoffs are going to be set by the time we talk again next week, and we'll start doing playoff predictions at that point in time and doing obviously playoff picks um the two teams that i talk about the most are the colts and the bears because i'm a colts fan and i live in the chicagoland area the colts there's really not much to talk about they got a win on sunday in order to make it into the playoffs they have they still have a chance they're if the playoffs ended right now they would be or started right now they would be in but we got one more game to play and they got to win it in order to stay in it so let's hope that they do the bears 
are already mathematically eliminated. They've already been eliminated from the playoffs, and they are officially on the clock with the number one pick overall. That's not their pick. It's the pick they got from the Carolina Panthers as a result of a trade, and the Panthers finished dead last in the league and thus had the, the number one pick overall, and because of that trade, the Bears get that number one pick overall. So the Bears are probably going to pick like first and somewhere between 10th and 14th, depending on what they do here this week and where they finally end up uh, in, in the draft order. Now, who are they playing the final week of the season? Their arch rival, the Green Bay Packers. The Packers need to win that game in order to make it into the playoffs. Lose, and they're out. So the Bears are looking to spoil the Packers' playoff chances. So they're going to be playing their asses off, even though it'll probably hurt their draft place. And and they're not in the playoffs, so it's not like they need to win the game to get into the playoffs or anything. So here's what's going to happen. If they win that game, they're going to celebrate like it's the fucking Super Bowl. They're going to they're going to they're going to put their entire year on that. They're still not going to be in the fucking playoffs. And they're going to hurt their own draft chances with their own pick. Then they'll go out in the draft, pick somebody number one overall, and fuck up their career forever. Yeah, I hate the Bears that much. Mm. Forgive me. A little dry mouth this morning. But whatever. It is what it is. That's what the Bears do. Let's go ahead and give you this week's picks. And see how I wrap up the the regular season uh, when we reconvene next Friday. This week's winners will be the Ravens, Colts, Bucks, Browns, Lions, Jets, Falcons, Jaguars, Seahawks, Chiefs, Raiders, Eagles, 49ers, Cowboys, and I'm going to take the Bears to beat the Packers and, like I said, celebrate like they won the fucking Super Bowl. Even though all they did was hurt their own draft status by knocking a team out of the playoffs that wasn't even supposed to be sniffing the playoffs this year. It was supposed to be a rebuilding year. So, there you go. Now on with the actual news of the week. A couple of non-political stories before we jump into the politics. Uh, first up, Mickey Mouse has hit the public domain. I'm going to read to you now from NPR. An early Walt Disney movie featuring the first appearance of Mickey Mouse is among the copyrighted works from 1928, moving into the public domain as of January 1st, 2024. But the cartoon creature who stars in the animated short Steamboat Willie isn't a lot like the Mickey we know today. He's more rascally and rough. His roots in the blackface minstrel shows of the time are more apparent, and he's not exactly cuddly. For much of the movie, Mickey amuses himself by forcing barnyard edibles into being unwilling musical instruments. You know, he's, he's evolved so much and become more 3D and colorful, observes Ryan Harmon, a former Disney Imagineer of the character today. He resembles anxious talk when he worked at the company in the 1990s, but the beloved icon eventually entering the public, 
public domain. My apologies. My notes are all over the place this morning, and it's early. I'm trying to get the podcast done early for you guys this morning, as I have other things I need to take care of when it comes to my trucking company. Anyway. (sighs) What is going into the public domain is this particular appearance in this particular film, says... Kembrew McLeod, a communications professor and intellectual property scholar at the University of Iowa. In other words, it's not the Mickey Mouse that we know today. It's this one specific Mickey Mouse. That means that people can creatively reuse only the Mickey Mouse from Steamboat Willie, not the Mickey Mouse in the 1940 movie Fantasia, nor the one on Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, a kid's show that most people nowadays might know. The new version of Mickey Mouse remains under copyright. So the original Mickey Mouse, Steamboat Willie, can now be used by anybody for any purpose because he's in the public domain. And we already have a horror movie coming out, or maybe it's already out, my apologies, featuring Steamboat Willie, because now anybody can use that image for anything in the movie industry. I just found it kind of interesting, and I wanted to make a quick little blurb about it because people are usually under the assumption that you know if you have a copyright on something, it's a copyright on something forever and ever and ever, amen, and that's not necessarily the case, as you can see here. You can literally use the image of Steamboat Willie in a movie right now if you want to and not be subject to a lawsuit by Disney. So I would watch for a whole shitload of people to come up with a whole shitload of movies and videos and shorts and things of that nature featuring Steamboat Willie that are going to be just fucking horrendous because they can and nobody can stop them. Just like I said, I thought that was an interesting little note. Uh, I have much more interesting news stories like I typically do. I just, I I found it interesting and I wanted to do a little blurb about it at, at the beginning of the podcast. Moving on to uh, more interesting and subsequential uh, news. Subsequential? Substantial. Subsequential. I don't know what the fuck I was talking about there. You're going to have to forgive me, folks. But I'm 13 and a half minutes into this thing, and I'm not going back to restart it. So let's just fucking roll with it, okay? Uh, Our next news story up is actually a good news news story, and that is that Gypsy Rose is free. I'm sure you've seen this already, but I haven't had a chance to talk about it on my podcast, so I'm now going to read to you from AP News. Gypsy Rose Blanchard said she has found a way to forgive her mother and herself, but it has been a long journey from years of abuse and the darkest parts of her life splashed across tabloids to living in prison. Blanchard, now 32, was paroled last week from a Missouri women's prison, Her release came eight and a half years after she persuaded her boyfriend at the time to kill her abusive mother, mother, Claudine Blanchard, in a desperate bid to be free of her. For years, her mother forced her to pretend that she was suffering from leukemia, muscular dystrophy, and other serious illnesses. At first, I was really angry with her, very confused. I am still confused. Blanchard told the Associated Press in a phone interview on Tuesday. But I understand that she had a lot of mental issues. And so I think that's brought me to a place of forgiveness by just trying to understand where she was coming from. I don't believe that she was evil. I know that she was very sick, she continued. 
This journey, Blanchard explained, also involved forgiving herself. Dee Dee Blanchard had essentially kept her daughter prisoner and duped doctors into doing unnecessary procedures by telling them that her daughter's medical records had been lost in Hurricane Katrina. Gypsy Rose Blanchard's attorney said the mother had Munchausen syndrome by proxy, a psychological disorder in which parents or caregivers seek sympathy through the exaggerated or made-up illnesses of their children. The mother-daughter duo received charitable donations and even a home near Springfield from Habitat for Humanity. Forced to use a wheelchair and feeding tube, Gypsy felt trapped. She said her mother, who lied about Gypsy's age to make her seem younger, prevented her from having much of a relationship with her father or with anyone else. I wish I could go back and tell my younger self, call your dad, reach out for help with uh, people because they will actually believe you, she said. The main reason why I didn't is because I really felt like nobody would believe me whenever I said that thing. things just wasn't right at home. When she turned 23, she supplied a knife to her boyfriend and hid in the bathroom while he repeatedly stabbed her mother, according to the probable cause statement. Then, Gypsy and Nicholas Gojan, I think is how his last name is spelled, who she had met on a Christian dating site, made their way by bus to Gojan's home in Wisconsin, where they were arrested. Gojan is serving a life sentence in Missouri while prosecutors cut Blanchard a deal because of the abuse she had endured. Incarceration was nothing but self-discovery, she said. She made friends, earned her GED, and overcame early shortcomings in her education that left her unable to do basic math. While behind bars, she even met and married someone who forged a relationship with Gypsy by writing to her on a whim. I was uh, in a little cocoon, and now that I'm free, I've emerged as a butterfly, she said. She describes her husband, Ryan Scott Anderson, a 37-year-old special education teacher from Lake Charles, Louisiana, as a teddy bear. In the pre-dawn hours last Thursday, Anderson picked her up at the prison. They had planned to go to Kansas City Chiefs, uh, a Kansas City Chiefs game on Sunday. She dreamed she might even bump into superstar Taylor Swift as she cheered on her boyfriend, tight end Kelsey, uh, Travis Kelsey. Swift's music had been an inspiration to Blanchard, but going to the game was deemed too much too soon. Instead, she headed to Louisiana and started to settle into post-prison life. Her father also lives in the state, and she said she is finally getting to know him as an adult. This is what I've been waiting uh, waiting for for so long, she said, but it's an adjustment. But it's a wonderful adjustment. She added that given her childhood, it's also her first taste of actual, real, full-fledged freedom. This week she is delighting in the little things. She used a Keurig coffee maker for the first time Tuesday. She played video games with her father using a virtual reality headset. She described both experiences as amazing. She isn't sure yet what will come next and said she wants to give herself a little bit of time before she decides. Eventually, she wants to have children with her husband. But when when is a question mark, as is possibilities for employment. The only jobs she has ever had were all in prison, where she took photos and helped out with janitorial tasks. Right now, I'm really not sure what my skill is, she said, so I'm going to have to kind of discover that over time. 
as she adjusts. There have been a fresh round of media coverage, obviously. A, life, a lifetime docu-series, The Prison Confessions of Gypsy Rhodes Blanchard, and her own ebook released, Conversations on the Eve of Freedom, are coming out this month. Around the U.S., people learned about the bizarre case from the 2017 HBO documentary Mommy Dead and Dearest and the 2019 Hulu miniseries The Act. While there have been many TV specials and interviews over the years, she steered clear of watching them, fearing it would be emotionally traumatizing, she said. This docuseries will be the first she has ever watched. I am at least putting myself out there to be a cautionary tale, she said, because I don't want anyone else to have to go through what I went through. Now, I did not endure the same things that she did. I, I, I endured just straight-up physical abuse from my mother, just flat-out beatings. My mom didn't make me pretend that I was ill so that she could receive financial benefit or sympathy from other people. She didn't make me use a wheelchair or, or feed me through a feeding tube or keep me out of school. She just beat me senseless whenever she possibly could. But as somebody who suffered abuse at the hands of a clearly mentally ill mother, I feel for, for Gypsy Rose. And I am extraordinarily happy <clears throat> that she is free. And there, there are going to be people that are going to hear that and go, but Tom, she killed her own mother. And I'm here to say to you, yeah, I understand she did. I, I, I get that part. When I was 10, I thought about doing the same fucking thing. I thought about it when I was 10, I thought about it when I was 11, I thought about it when I was 12, I thought about it when I was 13. Now, instead of doing it, I just packed my shit and ran away. But I had the same thoughts. And when I was 12 and 13 years old, I was a large enough boy that I could have done it. Myself. Probably relatively easily. So I'm not saying that what she did was right. I'm saying that I understand what she did. I understand why she did it. And she deserves her freedom. She deserves to finally be free. I got mine when I was 13, when I ran away. That's when I got my freedom. She's getting hers as an adult, and she has earned it, and she deserves it. And I think the world needs to leave her be and let her enjoy her freedom for the first time ever. That's my two cents on the Gypsy Rose story. Moving along, I would like to talk about Gen Alpha uh, as they are going to make their mark as quite possibly the biggest generation, the largest generation in history. I'm going to read to you now from Forbes. There is a generational cohort quietly, steadily encroaching upon teenhood, and by 2025, this group will be the largest generation ever at over 2 billion in size. If you don't know what Gen Alpha is, 
it is the like my son, the twelve year old. He's he's a, we're going to be one of the oldest Gen Alphas. So my son is Gen Alpha. Uh, I have a couple of nep- few nephews that are Gen Alpha. Th- this is the generation, the next generation coming up after Gen Z. Excuse me, got to wet that whistle again. <clears throat> few of us have taken heed of their stealthy march or even known that this group had a name, but the first true generation of the 21st century, Generation Alpha, is maturing. Members of this generation are passionate and compassionate, and growing up with smartphones and tablets has made them more digitally empowered than any group before them. The sheer size of this cohort will make them formidable when they enter college and the workforce. However, they are still young, and there is a slight uneasiness in directly targeting them without involving their parents. Consequently, their most significant contribution to date is creating a new consumer segment by bringing millennials into parenthood. This move to parenting, as it should, has shifted the priorities of millennials and opened new opportunities for brands to court this coveted millennial parent demographic while putting their Gen Alpha kids on the radar. As the oldest members of Gen Alpha turn 13 this year, my son will turn turn 13 December 1st of 2024. So as I said, he's one of the oldest members of the Gen Alpha, uh, Generation Alpha. As they turn 13 this year and move from starring in their parents' social media accounts to creating their own, the time is now to gain a better understanding of the characteristics of this blossoming generation the powerful influence of their parents, and the impending impact of this generational shift. Born circa 2010, just as Steve Jobs and the iPad were changing the world, these tweens are headed to the cur- uh, are ahead of the curve when it comes to technology, education, and cultural trends. The term Gen Alpha was first coined by social researcher Mark McCrindle of McCrindle Research. According to his studies, this cohort group will encompass the years 2010 through 2024 and will eventually constitute the largest generation ever as a new member is born every nine seconds and 2.8 million are born globally every week. At this rate, Gen Alpha will surpass millennials and become the largest generational segment currently. This is a generation that cares deeply about the global outlook, education, and equity. Climate change, poverty, refugee crisis, digital disinformation, and mental health are some of the issues that Gen Alpha is observing with keen interest. This social awareness is important to appreciate in order to get to the heart of who Gen Alpha is. They are going to benefit from the technology advancements that are changing education, such as the controversial AI platform ChatGPT that is transforming the availability of information. Schools must adopt a new approach to match their way of digital learning. While older folks are still debating race, gender, and reproductive justice, the youngsters have no tolerance for inequality. 96% believe all people should be treated fairly no matter what they look like compared to 79% of millennials and just 58% of boomers. And you will notice, once again, Gen X left out of the, uh, the equation. As a member of Gen X, i got to throw that in there. 
Gen Alpha is the most racially diverse generation ever, thanks to their millennial parents. Their early lives have been informed by a global pandemic, which has led to a changing labor force and evolving workplace. In addition to caring about the world, they also care about their future. What does this future in terms of career outlook resemble? 65% of Gen Alphas will work in jobs that don't exist today, according to McCrindle. Technology access is transforming thinking. As artificial intelligence continues to grow smarter and dominate the tech landscape and the jobs market in 2023, the code on Gen Alpha has not yet been written. Apple released Siri in 2011, and Amazon launched Alexa in 2014. As such, Gen Alpha is adept with virtual assistants, as well as smartphones and tablets. In fact, they do not know a world without touch technology or voice commands. Stop and think about that for one second. That that line right there is 100% accurate. My son, who's going to be 13 this year, does not know a world without smartphones, tablets, touch technology, voice command, pausing live TV, the whole shoot and match. He doesn't know a world without it. They are technologically enabled in a greater way than Gen Z. Kidfluencers, such as Ryan's World and Nastya, are exemplifying this trait all over YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Gen Alpha certainly sounds like an impressive generation, worldly, impassioned, and connected, but they are still young children to tweens who are known as mini-millennials because of their propensity to copy their parents' social media habits and lean toward their parents' brand references. Thus, it is important to elevate the characteristics of the millennial parent to get a full picture of this cohort. Gen Alpha will become the generation with the greatest spending power in history, but for now, spending power lies with the millennials, estimated at $2.5 trillion annually by Ypulse. Millennials, born between 1981 and 1996, are a diverse demographic and are the largest generational group with an estimated population of 72.2 million in the U.S. More than 90% are employed. They like to spend, but also prioritize savings, and they care about many of the same issues as Gen Alpha, such as the environment and mental health. Markedly different from previous generations, millennials have delayed marriage, age 30 for men, age 28 for women on average. More often lived with Romantic partners, 12%, before marriage. Married partners of different racial or ethnic backgrounds, 13%. Attained higher education levels and married partners with equal education levels. And given birth at older ages with many first-time mothers in their 40s, all according to the Pew Research Center. Interestingly, while millennial women are giving birth later, they aren't necessarily having fewer children, averaging similar rates to the Gen X and boomers before them. This has implications for how Gen Alpha experiences the traditional nuclear family relative to their older to the older Gen Zs. As they start their families later, millennial parents are, ha- are hands-on, child-focused, and extremely attuned to their Gen Alpha kids' needs. They rely on YouTube and parenting blogs for advice, engage with kids' brands online, value lifestyles, and want only the very best for their children. Millennials, as parents, differ from other parents both in their demographic and in their shopping habits. An in-depth National Retail Foundation survey found that millennial parents research extensively online and enjoy quick turnaround service. They prefer 
brands that reflect their social or political values, and they are more brand loyal than other parents, even ahead of convenience or selection. Millennials are set to inherit trillions from their own parents and are on a path to have five times the wealth they have today by 2030. This amassed wealth will be passed on to Gen Alpha along with a healthy dose of financial literacy. Go Henry uh, found that U.S. children collectively earned $25.5 billion from allowances in 2020. A capital group study found that 39% of millennial parents say that they would start telling their children around age 12 or younger to start saving. The many benefits of talking about money early include developing budget, uh, budgeting skills, encouraging savings and investing, and creating wealth, something that I'm going to be doing for both of my kids here in the near future, in the next week or so. Millennials also know money, 39% of the generation uh, research investing, at least weekly, and 67% cite YouTube and Facebook as their preferred resources for financial advice. And these are the people that are raising the next generation primarily. We are kind of an exception here in that my wife and I are both Gen X, and we have a Gen Alpha son. We had him later, obviously. We have, uh, we, we've also had a, a couple of Gen Zers. <clears throat> we have, uh, our, our oldest daughter, Ashley, is a millennial. So, we have a millennial daughter, two Gen Z daughters, and a Gen Alpha son. And and what you're hearing me talk about in this Forbes article is spot on with what Gen Alpha is. Gen Alpha is an entirely different kind of generation. And right now, the boomers are hanging on to property and wealth for dear life. They're not coughing it up, right? They're hanging on to property, wealth, and power like nobody's business. But they're dying. And that money's got to go somewhere. And that money's going to go down to the kids, as you heard in the article, and eventually down to the Gen Alpha. The, the generation that my son is part of, that my nephews are part of, they are going to be the most technologically advanced and wealthiest generation in the history of the world. The history of the world. It is amazing to think how big the generation is going to be, how wealthy the generation is going to be, and how powerful that generation is going to be when they become of age. Remember, the last members of Gen Alpha will be born this year, 2024. So 18 years from now, the last of the Gen Alphas will become adults. They will become of voting age. They will be going to college or entering the workforce. And all of Gen Alpha will then be of age and begin controlling the levers of power. I mean, my son is only a handful of years away from being an adult himself, and he is at the, at the older end of this, uh, of this uh, generational, as they call it, a cohort. So it is going to be interesting to watch moving forward. And, and at my age, I'm not going to get to see all of the success that this generation is going to be able to, to accomplish, but I hope I'm sticking around long enough to see some of it. Because I think that my son is going to be part of, our son is going to be part of one of the greatest generations ever. We'll see how that unfolds, though. All right, moving on to political news. Uh, we're obviously going to start with the Colorado ruling to keep Trump off the Supreme Court, uh, or off of the uh, the ballot in Colorado. Um, and Trump has appealed that ruling 
to the Supreme Court. I'm going to read to you now from CNN. Now, why am I reading to you from CNN? Because sometimes Trumpers want to listen to this podcast to get information to try and use against me on the various social media sites. And when I cite CNN, it just pisses them off. So I'm going to cite from CNN if I could. Donald Trump has formally asked the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the Colorado State Supreme Court ruling that removed him from the state's 2024 ballot under the 14th Amendment's insurrection, insurrectionist clause. Quote, in our system of government by the in our system of government of the people by the people and for the people Colorado's ruling is not and cannot be correct attorneys for the former president wrote in the filing with the court which was obtained by CNN the Supreme Court is facing mounting pressure to settle the question of whether Trump, the frontrunner for the GOP presidential nomination, uh, nomination, can be disqualified from holding public office as state courts and election officials have come to differing conclusions across the country. The first contests of the 2024 primary begin in weeks. The high court is separately involved in other matters that could impact the federal, minimum, uh, federal criminal case against the former president. Trump's appeal comes nearly a week after the Colorado GOP, which is also a party in the case, filed a separate appeal, and two weeks after the Colorado ruling came down. The ruling has been put on hold while appeals play out, in, uh, and Colorado's top elected official, election official has already made clear that Trump's name will be included on the state's primary ballot when it is certified on January 5th. Unless the Supreme Court says otherwise. Excuse me. (coughs) Mm. Damn. Frog in my throat. I know. How how nice for the frog, right? Mm -mm 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 -mm. All right. (coughs) But it's unlikely the high court will, will resolve the case as quickly as this week. If the justices do take up the case and conclude Trump is ineligible for public office, then any votes cast for him wouldn't count. The state's primary is set for Super Tuesday on March 5th. Eric Olson, one of the Colorado attorneys arguing against Trump's eligibility, said on CNN's The Source that he expects the Supreme Court will take up the case and is optimistic that the justices will see that there really isn't a close case here. I think this court has shown a willingness to step aside from a sort of the partisan frame on these hard issues that are important to our democracy, Olson said. Excuse me one moment, folks. (coughs) Trump's legal team is arguing that the question of eligibility for the presidency should be determined by Congress, not the states, and that the Colorado Supreme Court erred when it ruled that an insurrection occurred on January 6, 2021, and that former president engaged in that insurrection. A stunning 4-3 decision issued by the Colorado Supreme Court on December 19 said Trump is constitutionally ineligible to run in 2024 because the 14th Amendment's ban on insurrectionist holding office covers his conduct on January 6, 2021. President Trump incited and encouraged the use of violence and lawless action to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power, the Colorado justices wrote in their 134-page majority opinion. The Colorado Supreme Court erred in how it described President Trump's role in the events of January 6, 2021, Trump's filing stated on Wednesday. It was not insurrection, and President Trump is in no way engaged in insurrection. Trump's attorney also argued 
uh, to the justices that the Constitution's so-called insurrectionist ban does not apply to the presidency, which blows my fucking mind. <clears throat> Quote, Thus, to find that Section 3 includes the presidency, one must conclude that the drafters decided to bury the most visible and prominent national office in a catch-all term that included low-ranking military officers while choosing to explicitly reference presidential electors, the filing states. This reading defies common sense and is not correct. The Constitution's text and structure make clear that the president is not an officer of the United States, they added. (laughs) Then what is it? A lower court judge in Colorado had initially said that the ban does not apply to the presidency, but the state Supreme Court decision undid that ruling. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says, Oath-breaking insurrectionists cannot serve as senators, representatives, presidential electors, or, quote, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, or under any state. So, how are we to read that then? So it doesn't specifically say the presidency, but it says, or hold any office, civil or military. (laughs) Trump's attorneys also argued that barring him from the Colorado state primary, if allowed to stand, will mark the first time in history, uh, in the history of the United States, that the judicial, hang on one second, I'm getting texted. Sorry, it's one of my drivers, my apologies. If allowed to stand, will mark the first time in the history of the United States that the judiciary has prevented voters from casting ballots for the leading majority party presidential candidate. Among their concerns with the lower court ruling, Trump's attorney said that the Colorado Supreme Court dismissed out of hand President Trump's argument that Section 3 bars individuals only from holding office and not from running for or being elected to office. Well, guess what, pumpkin? If you run for the office but you were barred from holding the office, then it's kind of a fucking useless goddamn exercise, right? Trump's attorney also contended Colorado law doesn't require or allow a Secretary of State or the courts to purge candidates from primary ballots based on their own assessment of a candidate's qualifications. Despite the violence that occurred on January 6, 2021, and court findings that Trump's incendiary speech that day at the Ellipse inspired some of his supporters to participate in the attack, Trump argued in his petition to the justices that the speech called for peaceful protesting and included the full transcript of the speech in his filing. President Trump never told his supporters to enter the Capitol, either in his speech at the Ellipse or in any of his statements or communications before or during the events of the Capitol. To the contrary, his only explicit instructions called for protesting peacefully and patriotically to support our Capitol Police and law enforcement to stay peaceful and to remain peaceful, his attorneys wrote. Trump has unsuccessfully pushed this argument in state and federal courts, which found that he incited violence when he told supporters to walk down to the Capitol and fight like hell, quote-unquote, to, quote, take back our country. They conveniently, Trump's lawyers conveniently left that part out out of the filings. In an appendix filled uh, uh, with the court, uh, filed with the court, my apologies, Trump's lawyers included the full text of his speech. Though the ruling from Colorado only applies to that state, a potential decision from the U.S. Supreme Court could settle the matter for the entire nation. Courts in several other states have also reviewed challenges to Trump's eligibility, though no such case has made it as far as the one in Colorado. 
last week. Maine Secretary of State removed Trump from that state's 2024 primary ballot, and the former president's team on Tuesday appealed that decision in state court. And the Oregon Supreme Court could soon rule on a bid to remove Trump from that state's primary and general election ballots because of his role on January 6th as well. A group of Republican and independent voters filed the Colorado lawsuit in coordination with a liberal government watchdog group, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. They told the Supreme Court on Tuesday they also wanted uh, want the justices to make the final decision. This court's settled precedent holds that the Constitution provides no right to confuse voters and clutter the ballot with candidates who are not eligible to hold office, uh, the office that they seek. The voters wrote in the filing. They asked the justices to focus on two specific questions, whether Trump is disqualified from running for office and whether states are able to enforce the 14th Amendment's clause absent federal legislation. Whether the 14th Amendment prohibits a former president and current presidential primary frontrunner who engaged in insurrection against the Constitution from holding office again is a question of paramount national importance, they said in the filing. Because 2024 presidential primary elections are imminent, there is no time or need to let these issues percolate further. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold similarly asked the justices Tuesday to answer whether Trump can be removed from the ballot and provided them with a timetable of impending election deadlines that her office is required to meet. Griswold on Wednesday said that Trump's legal team's arguments don't make sense. Quote, a president, the person who has arguably the most power in this country, should not be able to do that type of action and run again when every other elected official would be barred from doing so, Griswold told CNN's Abby Phillip on Newsnight, adding that the Supreme Court should tell the American people whether a president can engage in insurrection and then run for office. This is going to be a real interesting case, folks. It's going to go one of two ways. The Supreme Court is going to uphold the Colorado ruling and Trump's going to be off the ballot or they're going to overturn Colorado's ruling. So what happens if both of those, in both of those instances? Well, if they uphold Colorado's ruling, then that sets the precedence for a slew of other states to remove Trump from the ballot. Like you heard, Oregon is trying to do so. Maine's trying to do so. Illinois just tried to do so, I, I believe, yesterday. So it's going to be, it's going to result in a slew of, of other states removing Trump from the ballot. Now, so far, there are states that Trump isn't going to win. Trump is not going to win. If he, if he remains on the ballot, he gets the primary, wins the primary, becomes the Republican nominee, and, and we go into the general election, he is not going to win Colorado. He's not going to win Illinois. He's not going to win Oregon. And he's probably not going to win Maine. So, so far, it's in states that he has zo- no fucking chance of winning the general election. He has a chance, obviously, of winning the primary there and becoming the nominee, which I still think he's going to be the nominee. But when it comes to the general election, these are states that we don't have to worry about when it comes to Trump. But if they they uphold Colorado's ruling, then a whole bunch of states are going to kick him off the ballot. And he's essentially going to be fucked. If they overturn the ruling, then he's allowed on the ballot. But what they're saying is, the states can't have these decisions for themselves. States' rights, which is what this court argues, all the time, or, or sides on all the time, are no longer as important as they would intend them to be, which means some of the decisions they've made, like overturning Roe, become back in play, right? Well, you overturned Roe because 
states should have the rights to do what they want to do. But now you're saying states shouldn't have the right to do what they want to do, so we're going to go back and we're going to challenge your overturning of Roe. And it's going to be a mess either way. Basically, this decision, this this impending decision by the Supreme Court, is a catch-22 for them. They can't win. If they overturn, then they face a credibility crisis and a bunch of lawsuits are going to come forward to challenge some of their own decisions that they've made recently based on their uh, their observance of states' rights. If they, if they uphold, then Donald Trump is fucked for the 2024 presidency because a bunch of states are going to move to move him off the ballot. So it's going to be interesting to see. This, this case is going to be taken up quickly. It's going to be handled in a matter of weeks. And we're going to know probably by the end of February where this all stands. And I am dying to see how this court uh, rules on this particular case. Because while they've been doing exactly what they were designed to do, overturning Roe, going after gay marriage, things of that nature, going after uh, voting rights, civil rights, things of that nature, and that's why the court was made. That's why this court this is what the, what this court was designed to do. When it comes to protecting Trump specifically, they haven't been what they what he thought they would be. They haven't protected him the way he thought that the way I thought that they would protect him. So. This is going to be interesting. A lot of these judge, these right-wing justices are quote-unquote originalists. Right? we got we got to follow the letter of the Constitution. Well, the Constitution is clear on this one, folks. So we're going to be talking more about this in the near future. Mark my words. Uh, elsewhere in Trumplandia, we got the news this week that Trump's businesses got $7.8 million in foreign payouts during his presidency. That's interesting. I'm going to now read to you from The Hill. Former President Trump took in at least $7.8 million from foreign entities in 20 countries, according to a new report from Democrats in the House Oversight Committee. Payments to his various businesses that critics say could violate the constitutional prohibition on accepting funding from foreign governments. The volume of foreign payments during Trump's presidency is detailed in one of the most exhaustive reviews of Trump's business dealings with foreign governments while in office. Democrats cautioned the total figure is likely higher, and they blasted GOP leadership they've accused of releasing Trump's accounting firm, Mazars, from turning over requested documents just four months after a years-long legal battle forced it to comply with the congressional subpoena. Critically, even this subset of documents reveals a stunning web of millions of dollars in payments made by foreign governments and their agents directly to Trump-owned businesses while President Trump was in the White House, Democrats wrote in their report. By pocketing foreign states' payments, President Trump repeatedly placed his personal financial interest and the interest of foreign wealth and power above the public interest, resulting in precisely the split loyalty between foreign power and the American people that the framers sought to avoid. The lion's share of the former money uh, of the foreign money, some five point six million dollars of the seven point eight million, flowed from, wait for it, China, which along with other countries primarily patronized three properties: Trump Hotels in Washington and Las Vegas, and Trump Tower in New York. Concerned the billionaire's hoteliers business would be a magnet for foreign spending. Ethics experts have long sounded the alarm that Trump's properties would be a route for violating the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, which prohibits the president and other government officials from receiving profit or gain because of their role. 
The report comes as the GOP is seeking to highlight the extent relatives of President Biden, mainly his son Hunter Biden, conducted business with foreign governments, including China. While Hunter Biden did conduct millions of dollars of business with Chinese companies and investors, the review of Trump's business ledgers showed income from Chinese government sources, like China's embassy in the U.S. and the Chinese state-affiliated Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, otherwise known as ICBC. ICBC spent $5.4 million over nearly three years for a lease at Trump Tower. The report also covers Trump's business with other Chinese companies that would not trigger emoluments clause violations but have otherwise been under scrutiny. The records show that CEFC, a private Chinese energy company that also did business with Hunter Biden, spent more than $5 million on an apartment in Trump World Tower through its subsidiary. Oversight Republicans dismissed the report as part of an obsession with Trump. Quote, former President Trump has legitimate businesses that the Bidens do not. The Bidens and their associates made over $24 million by cashing in on Biden's name in China, Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Romania. No goods or services were provided other than access to Joe Biden and the Biden network. Oversight Chair James Comer said in a statement, however... A Washington Post fact-checked found that within that pool of foreign business dealings, just $7.5 million went to the Biden family members, with roughly $7 million going directly to Hunter Biden. The fact-check also said many of those businesses were not shell companies, as Comer claimed, but were organized around legitimate businesses acti- business activities and investments. Other countries that patronized Trump's businesses included Saudi Arabia, with more than 615000 spent at his properties, and Qatar, which spent more than 460000 When Trump was running for office in 2015, he boasted of his good relationship with the Saudis based on his business dealings. Quote, Saudi Arabia, I get along with all of them. I pay, I buy, they buy apartments from me. They spend $40 million, $50 million, he said in a campaign rally. Am I supposed to dislike them? I like them very much, he said. The payments from the Saudi government and its royal family came as the country was working to secure a $100 billion arms deal with the U.S., spending money at Trump's properties the month he signed the May 2019 deal. While the report offers significant insights to Trump's business activities, it notes shortcomings in documents in documenting the larger picture, writing that what was uncovered was likely a fraction of total spending. Mazar's was either never provided or did not retain key records, the report says, while accusing Comer of releasing the company from providing the records won in a court battle. House Oversight Committee Ranking Member Jamie Raskin in March pointed to a letter from Trump attorney Patrick Strawbridge saying, I do not know the status of Mazar's production, but my understanding is that the committee has no interest in forcing Mazar's to complete uh, it and is willing to release it from further obligations under the settlement agreement. Comer denied that at the time. There has been no coordination or discussion with anyone from the committee's majority with anyone at Mazar's uh, about the sorry with anyone at Mazar about Mazar's documents. Comer spokesperson uh, Jessica Collins said in a statement to the Washington Post, calling the allegations completely un- unfounded and untrue. Well, as we can see now, that is not the case. The report follows another review earlier this year documenting Trump's failure to disclose more than $250,000 in gifts from foreign governments. So basically, what does this mean? This means that while the Republicans are railing away about Joe Biden because his son made money 
and they can't trace a fucking penny of it to Joe Biden himself. We see out in the open that while he was president, Trump was making millions of dollars off of foreign entities. Once again, whatever they accuse you of, they are guilty of tenfold. That is the MAGA way. And here is the fucking proof. And the Republicans aren't going to do a fucking thing about it because the Republicans are completely and utterly devoid of any kind of moral compass whatsoever. But that's okay. We're going to keep showing the American people we're going to beat this motherfucker at the polls in 2024 and then we're going to throw his fucking ass in prison. Period. Full fucking stop. We're not done with this motherfucker by a long shot. We're going to get medieval on his ass. Watch this space. Now, the last story that we need to talk about this week is a disturbing story that's been going on for some time that we've gotten some clarity on. Not much, but some. And that is Epstein's client list. I'm going to read to you now from Al Jazeera. About 950 pages of court documents identifying associates of financier and sex offender Jeffrey Epstein were made public on Wednesday. Included in the unsealed papers are the names of about 150 Epstein associates. Once again, I misspoke at the beginning of this. This is not his client list. This is just his associate list. People who have been around him. We still need the fucking client list. The documents were filed as part of Virginia... uh, Griffies, I, I, I'm going to mispronounce her last name, my apologies, 2015 defamation lawsuit against Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein's co-conspirator in his sexual abuse scheme. Maxwell was sentenced to 20 years in prison in 2022. Epstein died by suicide, allegedly, in 2019 while awaiting sex trafficking charges. Giffrey is one of the women who sued Epstein for abusing them at his homes in Florida, New York, the United States, Virgin Islands, and New Mexico. She said she was pressured into having sex with men in Epstein's social orbit. Other documents were unsealed by the court from 2019 to 2022. Last month, a judge listed in a 50-page document about 180 people under pseudonyms, ordering that the identities be made public within 14 days of the order. Some individuals have objected to this disclosure of their identities in the case, the inclusion, <coughs> sorry, the <coughs> sorry, the inclusion of a name on the list does not indicate there are any allegations against that individual. Johanna Sorberg, who is one of the many women who have accused Epstein of sexual abuse, said Andrew put his hands, Prince Andrew put his hands on her breast in Epstein's Manhattan townhome in 2001. This was while he was uh, taking a photo with. Shoreberg and Giffrey. Maxwell and Epstein were present while this photo was taken. Shoreberg said the photo also included a puppet that uh, said Prince Andrew on it. The incident, which has been previously reported by other social media outlets and which Andrew has denied, was an initial trove of previously redacted documents that otherwise revealed few new details about the extent of Epstein's alleged sexual trafficking. Shoreberg was recruited to work for Epstein by Maxwell, who had been his girlfriend in the early 1990s before they became professional collaborators and accomplices in sex crimes for almost three decades. 
While Shoreberg was hired as an assistant, she was about 20 years, uh, she was a 20-year-old college student. She was quickly turned into a massage therapist and was sexually coerced, coerced while she worked for Maxwell and Epstein from 01 to 06. Geoffrey, now 38, accused Andrew of sexually abusing her two decades ago when she was 17, an allegation that the prince called baseless. The case was settled in 2022. There are a lot of other names on this list. Um, trying to scroll down here, forgive me. We have Bill Clinton's name on the list. We have uh, Donald Trump's name on the list. We have Stephen Hawking's name on the list. We have a lot of people's name on the list. Once again, it is not the client list. It is just a list of uh, people that have been associated with uh, Epstein over the years, who have flown on his plane, who have been on flight logs and, 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 and guest lists at various uh, house, houses of his uh, in, in various places. And here's what I'm going to say about the First of all, there's a lot more information to come on this. We, we need the client list. We need more details uh, on who was where and who was doing what. Uh, it, it is alleged that all of the activities, at least on his private island, were recorded secretly. Those recordings have to be somewhere. We need those recordings. But here's what I'm going to say about this. I don't care whose name is on the list as far as their political affiliation, as far as their economic and, and social status, as far as whether they hold elected office, did hold elective office, want to hold elective office, I don't care who they are. They all need to be exposed. And what we need is the client list so we can determine who was actually involved in the assault of these young women's and uh, young women, and we can lock them up behind bars. And, and people are like, well, you're a Democrat. You're always going to defend Bill Clinton. No, I'm not. If Bill Clinton is found to have done anything wrong in this case, lock his fucking ass up for the rest of his fucking life. If Stephen Hawking was uh, uh, found to have done something wrong in this in this whole uh, sex trafficking scheme, lock his ass up. If if Prince Andrew was found to do something wrong, lock his ass up. If Donald Trump was found to do something wrong, lock his ass up. If there's a Hollywood actor that was found to do something wrong, lock their ass up too. I don't give a fuck who they are. I don't care if they have a D next to their name, an I next to their name, an R next to their name. If they're a man, a woman, they're old, they're young. If they're if they're socialite, if they're not, a socialite, I don't fucking care who they are. They need to go to prison for the rest of their fucking life. Period. Full stop. So we need to stop making Epstein's list a partisan issue, and we need to make it a human issue. We need to make sure. That this kind of shit doesn't happen again, and we need to send a fucking message. Every last fucking one of them should be at a minimum locked up. At a minimum. That's being nice. Remember, when a dog hurts a child, we put the fucking dog down. When a human hurts a child, we put him in prison. Personally, I think a double tap to the back of the head for anybody that was at Jeffrey Epstein's Island assaulting girls is in order. But that's a conversation for another time. We need the client list. It needs to be made public immediately. And then every last one of these fuckers need to be rounded up, no matter where they are in the world. I don't fucking care who they are. You round them up, you bring them back here, and you make them face the justice that they deserve. Period. All right, folks. That's all I got for you this week. 
As always, I thank you for listening. Swing by the website, oldhippymedia.com, order a book, subscribe to my other podcast, and make sure you tune in next week for an all-new episode of the Second Half Podcast with Tom Powell. And until then, as always, stay grateful.